everyone. Welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. Today, we're going to have a wonderful return guest and on an <laughs> equally emotional, complicated, and interesting book. Uh, so feel free to welcome back now Dr. Valeria Villegas Linval as we chat about Jenny Hival's Girls Against God. Welcome, Valeria. Yay, thank you. I'm so happy that, that you will have me back <laughs> this time around with my with my title being in completion. So it feels like a nice full circle and it's great to do it here in the podcast. <laughs> of course. What a book. What a book. That is definitely how I felt while I read it. Not even when I finished. It's like, what is what? Okay, cool. Fun. Interesting. <laughs> elaborate. It is. And I mean, I think, um, especially thinking through, I mean, I, I have to confess, like I came to this book because one of my friends, a um, very dear friend of mine told me, I, the moment I saw this, I thought about, I, I thought about you. And then in retrospect, I'm like, huh, I think, I, I think it might be a compliment. <laughs> I think no, so. I thought it was such a wonderful recommendation because uh, he is he's a, a literature scholar, so uh, he is kind of like having this um, sense of what is coming out. And I love the fact that he recommended this. I mean, he's a he was so wonderfully on point. Uh, and I think it's difficult even to summarize what is a, what it is about. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, like uh, I was thinking about. Okay, let's let's introduce this book to people in the audience who haven't heard of it or haven't read it yet. And I'm like, how the hell do we do that? <laughs> it's tough. And I mean, I think I learned about Yanni Hwan, who is a, she's a Norwegian novelist, uh, and I do know that her first book, Paradise Rot, did really well. Uh, however, I haven't had the chance to read it. So to me, the contact that I that I had with her is this book. And I think it is very striking. I mean, how would you even summarize what it's about? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm going to take a slight creative uh, excuse or something. Uh, and I'm going to poach the description that a, a friend of mine gave, uh, John, the literate guy, on Twitter as he read it. And that was after I read it or while I read it. And I'm like, yeah, I see it. Uh, and he talked about this book very briefly, and it's like, yeah, I, I think that description makes sense, but it's it's in part. I'm I'm gonna try and find it, but essentially, it's not really narrative as we'd think it. It's it's almost like a sort of collection of both testimonies and like certain life experiences and ideas, along with film script and art theory and weird horror elements and then a potential movie or not i think that is one way of thinking it but it's it's an elaborate novel yeah it's not something that you easily place and i think that's also the point which i always love yeah i mean i think that one of the strengths of anything and something that is so novel and feels really fresh to me is that the author we are even we're i mean it's really impactful the way in which it begins right like if i have to yeah. summarize what it's about it's about this woman this young woman who places herself in different points of her life and how she's relating to her environment as you know growing up in the early 90s and in Norway and sort of feeling trapped by that quaint kind of sense of uh of that sort of society right predominantly white and Christian and I think it is kind of a tale of the book that the first line that we read, well, first, uh, uh, it's 1919, it's 1990, and I'm the gloomiest child queen. Like, we're already <laughs> sort of introduced to this character without even knowing her name, right? And of course, the second line uh, happens to be, I hate God. Like, it feels very yep. black metal from the beginning. <laughs> uh, and then we learn how she starts also creating the sorts of networks with other two women that play out in ways that are suggested to be adjacent to some sort of witchcraft or some sort of connection that is so decidedly feminine, but at the same time that sort of even challenges that. And I find that even, I I find that maybe those statements don't make a lot of sense uh, when plays like maybe commonsensically in tradition and traditional narrative, but I, I do, feel that they make sense as statements of feminist philosophy like yes they, they make sense yeah and of like feminist recuperations of language and 
trying to write a language that defi defies kind of common sense, if it makes any sense. <laughs> it does. It's, there's a lot on like, and I was thinking in Portuguese and I, I don't remember Spanish, but because uh, the, there's a lot on the translation and the language about hate and how it sounds and the ways that connects. And it's like, oh, I wonder how that does or doesn't translate and, and how to think it. But yeah, it's it's a lot about sound, about language, about communication, about explaining or transmitting ideas and senses. It's very the book is a sensory experience, which is a weird statement, but that happens. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the instances I absolutely agree with this. There is this sense of like even graphically, she does this thing, and I I remember even separating it in the book because it seems as though they it doesn't make any any sense perhaps but a lot of it relies so much on sound and there is a passage where she has different sentences just in parentheses right but like many many parentheses and that that I mean visually really disturbs the flow of her normal sort of layout and it sort of forces you into a very different line of thought like it's no longer that sort of quaint narrative And I remember this, I was, yeah, I found it here as well. There are so many other instances in which she, I think, very aptly sort of thinks about the sounds like that are traditionally silent. There is an instance that I, I really like here. She is uh, talking to her friends, Venke and Therese, who are these women with, which she, uh, with whom she establishes this sort of creative alliance or relationship. And... And one of the instances, it's like screams along and it's a series of H, 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 yeah, like, which is traditionally silent. <laughs> and I think that, re that resource illustrates so well that there is this kind of even denial of, you know, like, I hate God. I hate the God of language. I hate, um, <laughs> like, like, hate is, as you wrote so aptly in your notes, like, as, as a way of communicating. And I guess that's what feels really raw and unclassifiable in a way. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, that's, it's in the title. Well, it's not in the title, but it goes against God. But hate, it's almost, I feel like hate is in the title as well. Uh, just so much <laughs> as it is like one of the motivating factors of the book. And just like this deep feeling of like revolt and anger and fury and hate, really. <laughs> And how that can be a way of like, I got a couple of quotes, but I don't think I got one of, of those that I'm thinking, but like hate as this way of communicating, hate as a way of connecting and how that can create a new type of work, like going so into this negative point of hate and opposition that it becomes creative in, in the, I mean, I'm tentative to say art installations, but what in what they create It's their works of hate, of sound, of noise, or of, of smell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know what, what I found really fascinating is that there seem to be languages and classifications and taxonomies for everything else that stands outside of the realm of hate. <laughs> However, hate is like phrased as something so visceral that it's difficult to grasp in terms that are, you know, linguistic. And I think that that's perhaps one of the things that really struck me about this novel. It was kind of hard. The first time I read it, I was just like, what am I reading? Uh, and I think that's that's precisely what she does so well as an author, you know, and thinking about this, um, this in terms of hate, something that I found so striking was that she's placing this. I mean, I know that the author is a musician as well, but she's placing, uh, of course, that much weight and sound and utterance and female language but aside from that you know like sort of sound element to her writing I found that historically and socially it was so interesting that she places the beginning of the book in the early 90s well kind of like in the 90s in general recalling the ways in which this hate became something so apparent in popular discourse in Norway right like black yeah. metal this sort of like blasphemous Uh, tradition of Norwegian black metal but something that I love that she did from I don't know she does it like three pages in this kind of sense of this hate that be, that it's hate that it's heavily gendered in the way that it is uh, ex uh, that it is made attainable to express right so these 
white Norwegian men that are being anti-Christian, this and that. But then she kind of, this kind of enterprise of reappropriating hating or reclaiming hate seems to be so incredibly radical because it seems like all of these discourses of sort of recuperating female power or or preaching feminist discourse from a point of, of view that recuperates a lot of these positive unseen aspects uh, of empowerment and, and sort of like that sort of discourse. But she does it on the other way around. Reclaiming hate is also a way to resist. Yeah. And reclaim blasphemy. I mean, that was, to me, was tough. I, I, she has this passage that I love uh, talking about headbanging and she's kind of recounting how how men head back <laughs> and she makes sort of like this very interesting underlining comment of yeah like there is a feminized thing about head banging and I'm going to just like take the quote if I may By all means. Uh, she's describing this kind of um, gig where, where there's a Norwegian band playing right like in this place it looks like a community <laughs> sort of hall uh, in a small town. And she writes, on stage there are only boys, boys who throw their long black hair back and forth, head banging with choreographed precision, not taught in jazz ballet. But while jazz ballet codes girlish, head banging is sexy. The identical movement means aggression in the metal community. Here, black is the only color, leather and velvet are the only fabrics, and the glistening guitar next resembles swords or dicks or both. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, just thinking about the heavily gendered part of this violent gesture of, of rocking your head back and forth that seems to be so innocuous, but also so proper to, you know, to black metal or to metal in general. And it was, it was very revealing that, to me, that also sort of gestures to this, not only recuperating the sound, not only recuperating hatred as a discourse, but also recuperating performance, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I think that makes sense because like uh, there's the thing about like representation and, and gender a lot in, in this book is that like, what are we seeing counterposing all these different elements? Black metal is this, shall we say, like guiding, but it's like the reference. It's the general reference to a lot of the comparison and the elements of like, okay, uh, they talk about hating, they talk about blasphemy and opposing, but like, what do they really mean with that? What do they really do with that? And it's like, her, her conclusions are that like, no, this is, <laughs> it's pathetic <laughs> mostly. It's like a show. And like, it's like, okay, how do we take it further or take it deeper in a sense that isn't just like a, a pointless act of violence or destruction? It's like, how can this be actually hateful or actually real? Yeah, and I mean, I, lo I love that you mentioned that because I mean, a disclaimer to the audience i was i was i'm i was a goth teenager i'm still a goth adult but i was very like into this sort of metal when i was a teenager and then in my younger adult years uh, i got really interested about you know like on the genealogy of the whole thing i no longer i no longer have the stamina to head back the way that i used to uh, <laughs> however I still have the hair to do it. But I, I was thinking about this specifically in the juncture that she's making a reference of and the kind of gender play that there is in, in heavy metal, but specifically in black metal in Norway. And one of the things that really struck me about the book is that she makes such, such references to this kind of opposition, right? The binary between black metal and the whiteness of Norway. Nordic whiteness that is reprised in this course, that is reprised in that Christianity and the kind of repression that she uh, so fiercely is opposing in the book as a character. But I was thinking about this kind of like underpinning, underpinning thing or in, in the discourse of black metal, like a lot of these associations are not, I think, casual. Uh, they're not a coincidence, I mean. Yeah. In the sense that black metal, of course, has been for a long time fraught with these very racist white nationalist tensions. And I love the fact that she sort of plays this up, like all these boys that are trying to appear really, you know, uh, contesting the power and sticking it up to the man are actually kind of embodiments of a very, uh, you know, like of a very extreme sense of masculinity. 
the very toxic masculinity, but also their embodiments of white supremacy, however much they want to say that yeah. they're opposing this and the other. There is an incredibly, you know, strong bent for that, you know, white patriarchal power that they're claiming. So they're really not claiming anything. They're just like doing it in a different way, right? Yeah. It's a it's a performance. And it's just yeah. a performance of something which uh, when going to to these roots and to these expressions, it's like, well, this uh this isn't radical at all, quite the opposite. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes I, I was thinking about that not so long ago because, I mean, with all this kind of recuperation that came back not so long ago with the release of Lords of Chaos, the sort of dram- dramatization yeah. of the uh, of the murder of Euronymous um, and all this kind of relationship that these men had to each other and that involved a great deal of emotional suffering. Um, and being unable to address things that are very real, like emotional pain and so forth, uh, and putting it at, in a performance and all the things that are involved in that. I was really reminded of how much of this kind of play uh, in popular culture associated to, to black metal also rests in that sort of comfort of, of keeping that kind of hierarchy, right? The very white hierarchy, that very male hierarchy. And to me, Girls Against God sort of exposes the fact that it rests on those principles. Um, And I don't remember in which, um, I don't remember in which page, but there is a very quote that, you know, um, makes that sort of underlining comment on whiteness, white Scandinavian, white walls, white fresh snow, white painted laminate and wild chipboard, white flagpoles, wild chalk lines on the blackboard, white cheese and white fish, milk, fish pudding, fish gratin and fish balls and white sauce, white pages and books, white pills and pill boxes, white roll-ups, platinum blonde hair, white brides and white doctor's coats, meringue and cream cake, Christian virgins from Jesus Revolution with white wooden crosses, Christian grunge. Listen, the music sounds like regular grunge. If you just forget about the lyrics, irony, nothing means anything. Boys from white revolution at summer camp, girls who can't, girls who think it's fine that the boys are racists because they're hot and because boys will be boys and boys in their Nazi punk songs. Listen to this track. The lyrics are so distorted you can't hear anyway. Listen, the melody is great. You girls are going to love it. It's your acoustic guitar. And in that passage, and it goes on like in that kind of stream of consciousness kind of style, <laughs> but it's so fantastic. I, I love the irony like of even replaying, you know, a pickup line of a boy telling you like, oh, you know, it's, it's a Nazi punk song, but listen to the guitar. <laughs> and I mean, she does it in, with such delightful irony, I think. Yeah, I think what leaves them the most of an impression is that like the, the representation, the analysis of here's what's going on, here's what's happening. And like these descriptions, they're like, they're so too to the core of things that it's like it's fairly inescapable it's like you may not like it but you you'll be hard-pressed to disagree with with what is stated or what is shown really like and i and i take i add this as an absolute compliment because like and i've mentioned this before and you probably know this already uh, but i'm like i'm an acting catholic not a traditional catholic god forbid but still so uh, a lot of like these things about hate and, and blasphemy is like it makes me somewhat uncomfortable and there are points which I uh, not necessarily uh, like in a personal sense like a lot of inverted commas there but I'm like yeah no you're you're absolutely right about this and these are all really important elements and some really like even if I if my position isn't to like tear it all down absolutely what you're saying and the way you're saying it is crucial to, to to understanding this so it, it was also a difficult read for those reasons i think but like it makes it it shows how it's a, a, an important book and portraying all this and these images these moments these so it's like these phrases which are just like yeah this 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 this, this. and see here uh see <laughs> it's it, it makes you like yeah yeah fuck 
<laughs> and I think, yeah, like, and I, I totally understand that because there is also the sense of, or at least uh, from where I stand, I think so much of the book relies on that kind of discomfort. Yeah. Like perhaps necessarily, you know, the strict sense of, of being blasphemous or burning crosses or anything of the sort. But blasphemy is an extreme opposition, I yeah. find. Like maybe it's a symbolic resource, not so much as, yeah, like doing this this kind of gesture of performative things of like, oh, I'm going to stand outside a church with an investor, inverted cross t-shirt, you know, <laughs> that feels essentially very teenage uh, in a way, but rather this kind of profound sense of like, this order is all wrong or we, we lack the language to sort of deconstruct that order that for her, it seems to be uh, heavily hinging on, on Norwegian Christianity, Norwegian whiteness, Norwegian patriarchy, this kind of Scandinavian yeah. feeling of, of uh, a welfare state, you know what I mean? So perhaps also, I think, and I would go very, I don't know if it's a bold <laughs> statement, <laughs> but to read it as a Latin American, it's, it's a very confounding experience, like, <laughs> right? Um, and I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize here, but it resonates, your comment about that discomfort resonates with me a great deal, because I think we're unfamiliar with that kind of stability, that a lot of these problems feel, or at least what she is, the kind of environments that she's describing, feel a little bit alien. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, because like, there's such a distance, like even physically. Uh, that it's like, yeah, okay, we, we get and we understand like this structural Christianity, but it's also a very different Christianity while also being similar. So the elements are like, and, and I mean, like, okay, okay we, uh, we read it. I don't know. I read it in English. I don't know if you read it in Norwegian, but. No, I, <laughs> although it's similar to Swedish, I think uh, I couldn't cope. So I read it in English too. <laughs> Fair enough. Even like the language thing, it's okay, we read it in English, but the references are to both like to Norwegian and to like Anglo-Saxon language. So like it's the structures are very different and it bases a lot on that. So it's like there is a distance, which is weird. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of it was was also heavy on the translation or something thing that was lost because I was thinking about this when when you read like the the beginning where she makes she makes very heavy you know sort of uh, relies very heavily on sounds that are proper to Norwegian they're close to Swedish so I could kind of get a sense of uh what she's referring to with that sort of like oh sound but they're so it's so heavily relying on linguistic characteristics that are proper to to uh, Norwegian that that's that's kind of a, a thing that maybe in translation doesn't quite, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say in translation does like gets lost in translation, but that's kind <laughs> of using the same word twice. But you know, like it, uh, it doesn't maybe carry the same implication if you put it in English. But you know, something that you that you uplift that I think is so incredibly important also to address this is. The fact of blasphemy and how culturally religiosity in Christianity, because I was having this kind of thought apropos a completely different thing, <laughs> but it was kind of related to this, this the sense of we're either in a spectrum that is completely blasphemous and in denial of Christianity and religiosity, like religious belief altogether as an institutional reality yeah. support, or we are for something that is completely, you know, blindly believing in these structures of power. And sometimes I really do wonder if these attitudes of, I mean, to me, sometimes I feel, and I don't want it, I don't want it to make it as a statement of disrespect to anyone that takes these attitudes toward, you know, belief at all. Uh, but it does make me wonder if it doesn't really make some people, uh, oblivious to the fact that popular religiosity, and I think both of us know very well because of the, of the incredibly history that it has in Latin America, reappropriations of Christianity as popular belief that are resistance, there are syncretic practices. I mean, the whole theology of liberation is that. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes it makes me feel a little bit uneasy. And, and I'm not saying that this is what the book is doing. I'm, I'm thinking about this right 
rhetoric that makes me uneasy to think like, oh, you know, anyone that believes that has a sense of belief in something is just an ignorant idiot, <laughs> an ignorant person that has no possibility of understanding the politics of this and that. And I really do feel like it's it's a devaluation of so many practices of belief that have historically been resistance. And I think the immediate, the immediate sort of context that we have in Latin America and syncretic practices that combine uh, different origins or different beliefs that are still at the core resistance. So I wonder if we don't really, you know, if if in this kind of like teenage angst <laughs> to to uh, to enact opposition in a way that is very new face, we do not miss that nuance. I mean, I, I believe that we that we risk missing that. Yeah, I feel similarly. I, I think that. Like, and it's something that I've I've seen here and there when reading some types of criticism, and I, I don't think they're they're necessarily mean spirited or anything, or but it it raises some discomfort when, and of course there are reasons for it, but when associating like oh cis heteronormativity and patriarchy and Christianity as these things that go together, and they do, but it, it like I always get okay, like Christianity has incredibly and many many pervasive forms and operations and institutions but there there isn't one there are christianities and yeah. that is a much more fertile ground for like for discussion so it always raises like I, I get a bit weary when i read those kinds of things or at least these types of statements because like yes i guess what you're saying but you're missing a lot and, and you're in context even missing like these other traditions, which not necessarily liberation theology, but these other groups of beliefs that incorporated Christianity and like reappropriated it with their own traditions and in other ways, which are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I mean, I think that perhaps because of that cultural kind of baggage that we have and, and being able, I'm not saying that this doesn't happen in Europe, it, it must <laughs> uh, in different in different capacities that I'm not aware of. Uh, but I, I do believe that there's something so fascinating about this. Again, I'm not saying that this is what the book does, but I was thinking about how, you know, punchy, of course, the title is Girls Against God and everything that that is kind of encompassed in that idea of God. But at the same time, you know, I think that popular discourse around black metal and again uh, around movements of resistance that are famously sort of in, um, looking towards religio- like religious belief, certainly the very principle of a thing to concede that there would be a God or a higher power or so forth, and sort of directing that nihilism at that at those discourses i get it i understand it uh and and at the same time i think it works really well here with blasphemy as an extreme opposition um but i do i do think that there is so much to gain like aside from the universe of the book uh (laughs) and thinking about those nuances that we're discussing right now that exercises of belief whether under christianity or other doctrines or can also constitute political positions and they have historically. So sometimes at the same time, I I completely share this feeling of unease of this really sort of binary thinking, (laughs) Yes. whether you're against, you're with us or you're against us on both sides, you know? So it's, yeah, it it makes me feel like sometimes we lose the grace there. Yeah. And I think like it works really well in this book because it is, I mean, I found the description, which I, I tried to about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes ago. But essentially, it says, goes against God, a novel, part manifesto, part art theory, part blasphemous witches ritual, a restless series of riffs searching for a way out and a new kind of becoming. And as the book being all that, it, it makes sense. Like it is effectively creating or showing or demonstrating this position of hate of blasphemy as this sort of manifesto or this idea of, of, of thought, of, of action. And like, it, it works in, in the entire environment that the book depicts and, and shows us and that we read. I, I again, it, I feel discomfort, but I am hard pressed to disagree or oppose with like the protagonist's train of thought and understanding or even actions. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's what's so brutal. I mean, to me, it was much more of a, 
of an opposition sort of move that any <laughs> that any like super hard guttural voiced uh, black metal song uh, because I think that it really strikes a chord in, in thinking about the ways in which not only you know music power or uh, language but language uh, are heavily it's a heavily gendered system mm -hmm. and who can't afford to hate and this kind of meditation that comes again and again in the book uh i think like the the, the politics behind like the politics of hate if i can call it something <laughs> the, the gender politics of hate and who can be granted that faculty and i think in in that framework of uh being raised as the character is describing being raised in a very christian small town kind of mentality uh in norway i think that it illustrates the opposite quite well and it does it in such a way that it also sets us um or it sets the book and sets its actions in very specifically very specific historical junctures black metal like the yeah like the scene of the black metal during the 90s even remember uh i even remember that she makes um reference to dark throne i mean they still exist but they were much bigger then i guess <laughs> and i think they're still big and sort of like these these things about the convergence between black metal power discourse making someone you know making someone uneasy by the sheer by the sheer act of of say you know of defining yourself as a black metal fiend and all these things that i think throughout the book become a preoccupation about power and about the faculty of hating as agency um yeah. and i that i i really i really liked i thought that I mean, I love the book. It made me uncomfortable in the sense that it's difficult to grasp. You really don't know what it's about. Uh, but I, I think that I really enjoyed the sort of effort of constantly referring to the visual and to sound and to texture and to touching and tasting and smelling as ways of complementing a language that she sees not only co-opted by patriarchal models, but also a language that isn't sufficient to express everything that hate entails, whether it's hate towards God, society, culture, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. I think that she manages to, yeah. to sort of cap intensity. Yeah. I don't know. Like every time I think about this book, I, I couldn't be more grateful <laughs> than my friend. Well, it was, he's probably one of the people that's going to listen to this, I would hope. Uh, my friend Human, so thank you for pointing me towards this book. Uh, I think that it's difficult perhaps to to even think in terms of its language because it's so visceral. I yeah. hardly do find, right? It's difficult to find uh, writers that are so averse in, in being able to find strategies that convey that sort of visceral drive to their language i i don't know how to describe it yeah because like i i think for me this book i really enjoyed it but i'm not sure i like it <laughs> i mean i think it's <laughs> wonderful but it was not an easy or uh simple experience but for that reason it's going to stay with me for a while so i'm like yeah i um because we 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 set up this recording quite some time ago at least that we were going to chat about this book and then I read it quite a bit ahead of time, made a couple notes, uh, Valeria added to them, and we started figuring things out. And I'm like, it's still, and I haven't, I, I skimmed the book, checked a few sections again, but like, it's still just as fresh as after I finished reading, because there's, well, frankly, quite nothing like it. And it is like, it, it carves its, <laughs> its talons deep. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, and I think that specifically that that trait of, of not being able to let go is such a testament to how effective it is. Uh, and I mean, it is it is a book that I think also touches upon this kind of crucial connection between uh, Christianity and capitalism and patriarchy as this cohort of of things of oppressions that define the character and, and that invite or fuel that sort of hate that's stands at the core of the book. And I, I was thinking about this sort of incredibly kind of bombastic even way of using language as an exaggeration, as 
as blasphemy taken to the extreme. And I was just looking through the book and I remember I even highlighted some, uh, some passages in this. And I think she's hyperbolic in a way that it's, <laughs> I guess that's, that's the sort of relationship that it establishes with the reader, right? Like how serious, how seriously can these claims be taken? Uh, whether it is an invitation to to hatred or to violence or what is going on. And I found this quote that I thought was, it was very metal, certainly. <laughs> uh, and she writes, instead of bearing children, witches are set to devour them or sacrifice them to the devil and to enchant men into impotence. They are tried for the following, murder, abduction, causing impotence, cursing, hexing, and giving birth, all paraphrases of the great sin resisting power, asking questions, hating God. But why? what if these divisions cease to exist? What if you stop drawing a distinction between women and witches, between production and reproduction? What if you no longer separated arts and crafts from witchcraft? If you examine what happens in the bindings, in the channels, in the blasphemy, in the dark triangles, that's our bound. The whole world could be our witch's dorm. And I mean, she is um, describing the relationship that she has with these friends of her, these two characters that come into her life as the sort of witchcraft coven that they have, Venkia. It's very Norwegian name. No, no, no wonder I couldn't remember it. But this sort of relationship that she that she draws with an historical placing of of witches uh, and of women as inherently aligned with that possibility, the capability of becoming a witch. And it is, I suppose that that's one of the things that struck me the most about the book, because, I mean, because of my, of my academic interests in witches, uh, but thinking through these, these sorts of, not even oppositions, this sort of presupposition that she makes, that women are inherently aligned with witchcraft and without rebellion and not separating production from reproduction. And even though it seems like a played out uh, statement, it seems to me that she revises it and takes it to the extreme, which I appreciate it because it's off-putting. It is for sure off-putting. Yeah. The way that she, it's off-putting, it's extreme, not in that statement, but throughout the book. And I found that it was very refreshing as a, as a counterweight to this sort of rhetoric that has gained popularity. I know, I mean, it, it feels very 70s, right? Like this whole, whole like feminist witchcraft type discourse but i think that she does this in, she does this recuperation in such an off-putting way that to me it was refreshing and i and i was like yeah you know rooting for this because of this this sort of mm, i mean the commodification of the witch as a figure is nothing that is new however yeah. i do think that with this kind of turn uh that is culturally you know prompted by um, discourses of uh, responses, responses to to abuse and to patriarchal oppression that are very public, and that sometimes take the take the cloak of the witch to say in a certain way, um, like that risk defanging that potency of of the witch's opposition. Yeah. And to me, Jenny Fan was doing it in such a powerful way that it's off-putting because it's supposed to be off-putting. It's supposed to be uncomfortable which I'm afraid sometimes the witch has stopped being that, you know, uh, yeah. this kind of, you can buy it, in, you can buy this on Etsy and you buy my crystals and, <laughs> and you know, burn sage and endanger it. <laughs> that, sorts of, that sort of thing I find, and I mean, perhaps it's a very personal statement, what I'm going to, I mean, all of these, of course, are personal statements, but I find it to be off-putting and counterproductive. The sort of because it is, I feel, the 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 commodification of the witch, and I have argued it in my thesis at length. <laughs> uh, it feels also like such a Eurocentric, very white feminist movie. Oh, absolutely. So all of these in betweens, I think, of the potency of of being off-putting and of hating. Uh, and if not, you know, like defining that critique, I think come across in the book in a very effective way. And perhaps that's why it's difficult to, to stomach, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's no commodification here. 
there can't be no in any in the ways that it brings like oh what what witchcraft is here it's blood it's viscera it's bodily fluids it's carnal it's raw in a in a sense like there's no there's no charm to it and i think it it draws again towards that hate like it's not about a posture it's about or a performance or just a performance or just a posture but it's like something that is very deep in a sense of how to engage with that that it is like this okay what is it is it to be a witch what is it to do a ritual it is about bodily relations like and very uh skin deep yeah and I love that you that you phrase it like that because it's so tactile. Like I, I mean, I get really intense with this book because <laughs> I felt like it was very gut driven, yeah. uh, and right, like to to open a book uh, talking about hate, like I, I hate God or it feels like or uh, girls against God. The very the very loaded uh, sentiment that that brings about like, like there are sentences that are loaded and that are visceral and that are that rupture that you mentioned and I was thinking through this book as well like the very difficult way of even grasping the language of blasphemy being so in tune with the erotics of the language like there are so yeah. many of these messages where the relationship between the body and discourse it's almost difficult to to assert because they seem to be so melt like melding into me and there's even this kind of I feel the Venketeris and the protagonist of the book having this relationship that is even you know like that it's erotic in nature in the sense that they are physically and sort of like gut level connected uh, but also relationship that informs their artistic production because all like all three of them have uh, different uh, artistic practices throughout the book and I think that it was so interesting that everything to me seems to be sort of pinned down in that, yeah, the erotics of that language and even transposing it, like the erotics of hate, right? <laughs> as much as it is about the, the the gender politics of hate, I feel like it is about the erotic <laughs> of hate. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does. And I think like the, the, the forest, is that the, the second section of the book, which is supposedly the film? the protagonist is writing thinking trying to do i think that is the the erotics of the of hate and the erotics of blasphemy <laughs> yeah and i mean i think there's also this other thing that to me really stood out that there are many of these connections about networking right yeah. networking connection and this kind of relationship that all three of them have um that it's difficult to define because it sort of relies on how they're relating to each other that you're no longer able to see where one of them i mean maybe not literally but where one of them ends and the other one begins and that kind of horror i mean it sounds maybe very predictable but the kind of horror that stems from being indiscernible from each other right mm -hmm. the horror of of permeating the boundaries of overflowing the boundaries of being together in a way that is almost monstrous because you can't really distinguish one individual from the other. And in that sense, I do think that it sort of uplifts that, um, that erotics may be not necessarily appealing to any sexual attraction that they have with each other, but that relies on that sort of a different pleasure, a, a pleasure mm -hmm. that stems from hate, which seems paradoxical, but the pleasure of hating. <laughs> which I guess also plays out to this many ways in which hate comes across in the book. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't but agree with that. I hadn't thought about that as much, but I, I think it makes sense because they, they start not, well, as you said, not literally, but they start sort of becoming, they confuse themselves or, or, or as a reader, like they're all there and they're distinct, but not quite. It's, uh, I mean, it's the thing about the community in the sense that they're together and they are, they're there, but there's something greater together, united or unified. And what ends up happening in terms of their own internal relationships is that it, and that's a, a way of thinking of like that motivating hate, how does it drive them? How does it drive them together? And that is, um, 
I think that is one of the few sections of, of, of the book. And again, it's still uncomfortable at times where it's still weird at least. But I think that the way that the three of them interact or are together, they it's one of the few sections which are quite beautiful in in that regard. It's like it's like this is actually this is not actually that uh discomforting or disquieting, or at least not mostly. <laughs> no, and I think it is, yeah, I mean, this kind of networking and that kind of connection that you're absolutely right. It comes right after kind of like as a wrap up to the book that is so heavily relying on, yeah, the, the different relationships that they have as, as embracing this kind of witchcraft. And then there is this discussion about the internet. And I found it so interesting that she's also appealing to the way in which the internet is essentially that kind of the, oh, I can't say embodiment because it's a virtual thing. You can't, you know, it's not embodying anything, but it comes to stand for this sort of like infinite amount of connections and so forth. And of course, she is discussing this in terms of, I think, something that really spoke to me. And I, I really don't know how, uh, what your take is on it. But the, the idea of the internet as connection, but also as a collection of of moments in which kind of history falls in itself, because they are revising all these old witch blogs and all these materials that are on the internet. And there are many references about uh, former media, like um, diskettes and mini cards and all these things that for now, uh, for us now, they feel like a vestige of some past, right? Some recent past. But to me, it was so interesting that the book, I think, also makes these connections throughout its very non-linear way of telling the story, where it's it feels like that sort of impossibility of, of developing a language that can make sense of linear history makes that history sort of fall in itself. We know what is happening with her uh, with her background, her past. Then we get sort of glimpses into the future to her relationship to Venke and uh, Therese. And all of these things seem to be kind of randomly out of order, but at the same time, it makes sense that these passages are sort of like falling in themselves. They, they are even disobeying <laughs> the linear idea of a history. And I think that's even more, even more blasphemous, right? Yeah. Uh, to think beyond linearity of, of systematizing history. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm all for that kind of blasphemy, uh, mostly <laughs> because like I, and I think about this a lot, like, to do any historical work like yeah you're in the present you, you can't really leave that behind and if you try to you're gonna fail and it's gonna show so like to have history happening and as you said folding in on itself is like it's the only way i know of doing good historical work or doing history or writing history in a you know self-aware and interesting way so like, yeah, that, that is, I can totally see that going on. And I don't think I realized it as much as like, you know, following, trying to piece things together in, in that regard, like puzzle and not like appreciating how it, it does this inwards movement in, in time and in the characters. Exactly. And I mean, I, I think that's, that's um, in that reflection, what really stands out to me that I think you put like so perfectly, it's an inwards movement. And in all this kind of, to different capacities, I mean, of course, the novel being a very personal enterprise, right? Writing a novel. But I do find that the character herself, I don't know how much of this is autobiographical, how much it is driven by recounting the author's own, you know, uh, involvement in this specific points in time, uh, in her involvement with uh, music in general, like all these things that read really personal. But beyond that, it seems to me that this kind of thread of being put, like sort of creating a history of the self in a way yeah. that sort of draws from different histories as well and doing it in, in, like through a, through a feminine, I don't know if, I wouldn't say like through feminist language, but rather through this drive of recuperating language and salvaging different faculties in which language is not only the spoken word or the written word, but comprises all these other elements that appeal to different senses. And that sort of not only create a new sense of how to write history in a way that is not <laughs> linear, but also bringing the, 
the very subjective enterprise to it to the fore instead of excusing oneself as a removed kind of witness uh, all of this feels just as visceral because of this kind of constant desire of making a history of the subject of the yeah. self not of a bunch of communities not of a, of a point in time in Norway but chronicling that through the visceral which seems to me a very clever move in the sense that it appeals to that kind of corporeality that seems so removed from from making history at all um not making but writing about it yeah no absolutely i i completely agree and i think that in all that work it it implicates us as readers when a lot of like the chapters or sections or whatever they end with like do you feel it too like asking us who are reading like do you feel the same way do you engage in that same way how do you, how would you do, how, what would you say? And it's like, it, it's, um, and it's a very particular way. I think we're directed in very specific ways and ways that like, okay, and what would you do? And do you feel it as well? And it's like, it's uh, bringing us together. Yeah. And I mean, I like that. I like that, you know, effectively this, this sort of like the insistence on hate is so, so forcefully pulling us into that feeling, into that sort of engagement that is very, very gut-driven and very violent. Because in reprising that, and I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. This kind of direct address to the reader, it is almost like an, not, not an I wouldn't say an imposition because that sounds like a violent gesture, but it is an invitation that is very difficult to refuse. And in yeah. doing that, it's like you're co-writing the, I mean, <laughs> beyond the whole death of the author thing. Um, <laughs> I, I think like co-writing, I mean, I think it illustrates it very well. As a matter of fact, I know that more than one would be, would have their beefs with, with that text about the death of the author, but it, it really does engage the reader in a way that implies a co-writing of the novel in that enterprise of reading and sort of engaging in that hatred feels like a call for co-authorship with the reader, which I thought was very interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that is an excellent way to put it. It's like, yeah, th this book it, uh, and like the characters and the text is calling out to the reader and like, okay, now how would, what, do you feel it as well? And it's like, the tone is very different, I think, in those short passages. They're like, it's a lot more gentle and it's a lot softer than the hatred that is being said all the time or that is being, that we're seeing all the time. And like, it's, it, it's another, in, in talking about community, I think these moments are of community with a reader who can be there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that one of these connectivity gestures and one of these things about, yeah, praise, like preaching connection in a way that is beyond the book and, and phrasing it even in, in terms of like damage or, or reproducing a certain idea. Because I, I, was, I was stumbling upon one of the passages, if I may. Uh, she, she writes, I dig virus at the world love. A little, even before that, the virus is a standard metaphor for the diseased elements of society, which sometimes spread quickly and dangerously, and sometimes cause a slow disintegration, rural social demo democracies and nation, national states, nation states. Uh, black metal has been called a virus, and homosexuality in porn culture and the southern cruisers. This disease the virus causes spreads through the body and constructs a pattern for a new shape. It is a communal, painful language that can affect us all. Influences connect people, bring us down and together equalize us. The virus is a bond after all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's really impactful to even thinking through the metaphor of virus, which is so heavily, you know, which brings such heavy associations. And I think it is perhaps very timely to read it now that virus is a part of the popular discourse in a much more, it, it always is, but uh, it has been so painfully apparent uh, yeah. through the pandemic. 
And to think about virus as something so abject and so forbidden and so damaging in terms that are that that vindicate the virus, to me, that's it's a very kind of like slap in the face sort of gesture. Uh, and of course, this was written before, published before the pandemic, but one can think about a number of viruses that are also related to that sense of objection, but not connection. And of course, uh, I mean, I just, I was thinking about Susan Sontag's diseases metaphor, which I absolutely adore that book, and the ways in which virus seems to be canceled out as, as a way of making a metaphor about communication or about connection, uh, because of all the social and cultural associations of destruction that it brings about. But when she when she phrases this, uh, and then she starts talking about viruses, love and misconnection. And to me, it was very, you know, it was sort of like a punch. <laughs> because I think it also reconceptualizes that networking that we were talking about, and takes a, an element that historically maligned to make a statement about about com- connection and communication, maybe not a very uplifting one. Uh, <laughs> but certainly one that that understands hatred as a new kind of language and virus is another new kind of language. (laughs) Yeah, on the role that we must take in in front of these institutions and these established parameters, so to speak, of like as viruses, as tools of disintegration. And that is, that's really cool. And like, it's really like... uh, Again, quite timely that it came like just before the pandemic. So it's like, oof, but y- y- good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it cuts deep when you read these things in the light of what is happening around, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I found it to be very, I mean, it is a very haunting kind of book. And when you read, of course, the the blurbs that, that make, um, that try to make sense of it, you will <laughs> find how different they are on their takes like some of them focus on the female body at the center of, of the of the book some others you know sort of focus on the part of of the black metal the significance of the black metal you know like scene uh in a region pop uh in a region pop history and culture but I guess that that sort of disparity and that difficulty of being able to focus on one of the features of the book is a testament with, uh, to how not only challenging it is as, as a book that, that does challenge, not even negotiates, like completely negates sometimes even form, um, yeah. right? Like cutting into passages with different, uh, very experimental ways that are, could be more associated, more readily associated to the image or to music. And being able to reprise those strategies not only is a feat, but it's unclassifiable. And I guess that's that's what really struck me about the book. It makes it difficult to forget, as you said, uh, because of all these faculties. It is difficult to grasp, and I think it is supposed to be. Yeah. And like there's uh, so, so many different topics and ideas that the book brings about, like to talk about like media and art and film and, and writing and what how to do that how to think that and, and like in so many different ways like it's it's a very provocative book and in so many different directions yeah and i mean i think that is so well summarized with the with the description that you were reading about the book a, a bit earlier um what really stuck with me was the reference to becoming. I mean, that feels very philosophical, right? Very in the left. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but becoming is a form of literary expression, becoming as a way to also leave it as an open-ended book. And I mean, the author also makes this reference to magic and witchcraft. It's something that never ends, that is constantly in flow. And I think the languages of becoming or the languages of fluidity or indeterminacy as associated with women can also be incredibly powerful to acknowledge that there are these these sort of like structures hinging on what she identifies to be Norwegian Christianity, Norwegian patriarchy, even Norwegian black metal uh, forms of expression and cultural, you know, and culture and history that are associated to that specific context. But all of these alternatives that are sort of provided through through becoming, through fluidity, through networking, through indeterminacy, 
uh, and I might be a little bit biased because that's where I come from philosophically, <laughs> but I, I really do think that they, they recover this potency in the book because it's so, I mean, and I mean this in the best way possible. It is very revolting in the way that it, um, that it expresses certain things. Yeah. I mean, I think repulsion and revulsion and, and disgust can be also radical gestures. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think, and this is a compliment as well, but like this book is a horror movie. It, <laughs> yeah. Because it, it, it's not just a book, or it's not just talking about fiction and not just doing that, but it's also creating a lot of these situations and feelings and impressions and repulsion, revulsion very clearly in quite a lot of passages that it is it's incredible it's a wonderful book in it being so uh. yeah you know it reminds me a great deal i mean i think it's very apt to think about it in terms of like the audio visual now that you're telling me this i i was thinking about this movie that i mean this film didn't come out a long time ago it's probably from 2017 perhaps we we are mm. the flesh which is a Mexican, I, w- I don't know if I would call it a horror film, um, but I, just for the sake of simplicity, I will, a Mexican horror film. Uh, that, and I recommend to the, to the listeners, if, you are, if you're, uh, you're interested uh, in thinking in terms of that sort of undoing and that sort of disgust and that sort of challenge to common sense at all, uh, that you watch it, it is, it sort of takes place in, in a very different setting. It, it takes place in, uh, in Mexico City, like some sort of post-apocalyptic moment. Uh, and it brings together people in isolation and they start doing all this really weird stuff. <laughs> uh, and they, it is, what I mean is like all of these relations that rely on family, on gender, on common decency. <laughs> Uh, become completely undone and it does it maybe in a way that I could even find a parallel with the book and that it challenges all these orders in an enclosed space Uh, and it does it so vividly but with colors where I I can sort of associate girls against God with blacks whites and grays Uh, we are the flesh desert with neon colors and Mm. with incredibly you know like impossibly saturated image imagery that is very very heavy in how vibrant the colors are, even though it's depicting a subject matter that is very, you know, disgusting, revolting, someone being incredibly violent, uh, abuse, incest, like things that happen in isolation in this particular, you know, way of relating to each other uh, in an isolated space. And while it is not the same subject matter, I think both of them convey languages that are just extremely blasphemous in the sense that <laughs> they go against the kind of order established either socially, culturally, or by, you know, and therefore uh, by way of, of gender normativity. And I think it is perhaps the reason that, that one of, that is one of the reasons why it was so appealing to me to read this book, because it, it can perhaps only be, or I don't know, only, but it can very aptly be described through metaphors that rely on image and sound much more than against other books, I think. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to classify it. So I think in terms of it, uh, like as, as a as black metal riff or as, a, as off-putting imagery or as distortion or something that is not quite in written language. Yeah. I guess we, 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 the only thing we can say about that is read it. <laughs> we recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked it up enough. <laughs> I think so. Uh, and I, I would really hope that the, that the listeners take a peek and that perhaps they share what they feel about it if maybe they, they felt sad. So it's an invitation because there is not quite enough that we can say, I think, uh, that is able to to capture everything that goes on in the book. It's a very enjoyable page turner, I think, but in a way that it is you trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> exactly. And in that regard, like we've we brought up some stuff uh, on a reasonable amount of time, but there's, there's a lot more out there. And by all means, have fun. <laughs> yes. And please do share your thoughts. I think it would be very interesting to, it would be very interesting to read or listen to what the listeners, um, 
took out of this book and how they felt when reading it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'd love to. Do, do feel free to, to mention to mention me on, on Twitter, be it myself mm-hmm. or, or the podcast, like, please. Um, and yeah, I, I think like I'll, I'll just I'll do the outro then uh, <laughs> as as, as a, a good way of wrapping things up. Like, thank you. Thank you for being here, Valeria. Like, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, again. Hopefully you'll return again. However many times you'll have me, I will be happy to partake. Yes, Magnificent. I uh, but yeah, uh, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at LeftPagePod and also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LeftPage, where we have both the reading corners where I write about stuff, either fiction or nonfiction that I've been reading and thinking about. Uh, a lot of theory because I'm doing my master's. Um, <laughs> But there's also the writer's desk where I'm thinking about a lot of these things in terms of like actually writing and putting yourself in those shoes and in that position because it's one I do. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But yeah, do check those out and, and support the show if you're interested. If you can't, that's all right. Our show is, uh, is out there for everyone. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. And thank you again, Valeria. Like it, it's always a pleasure. And hopefully we'll, we'll chat again sometime soon. Mm-hmm. likewise so thank you it's been a pleasure thank you for having me and well to the listeners enjoy enjoy the blasphemy <laughs> enjoy the blasphemy see you next time see ya